Open up with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings, it's in the Old Testament, as we begin to walk through this wonderful story that Iris read for us, and I too beg you to pray with me that we would get it right and honor God and show His glory. Lord, we come to you this day, grateful that we can gather together as your people. And Lord, as we look at this for some familiar and for others not so familiar story, that you would give us the ears to hear what you would have us hear and the eyes to see what you would have us see so that we might walk in your ways and show forth your glory in our day as Elisha did in his. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as summer is winding down and school has begun for some and beginning tomorrow for others, it's natural for families to begin to ask themselves, well, what do we want to accomplish this year? The school, beginning of the school year is kind of like a new year. And the same thing in the church, you know, what are we about? What are, we, what are our goals as a people? Well, as we approach kickoff Sunday on the 13th and the Discovering the Real Jesus series that we'll be doing where we're rediscovering our love for Jesus, where some will discover Jesus perhaps for the first time, and we're going to equip ourselves to share this approaching uh, Christmas time with the idea of the gospel, which is the essential message that Jesus Christ can change anything and anyone. With that in our minds, I want to take a couple of weeks before kickoff Sunday and see what that looks like in a person that's just like our people here on the West Shore. The Syrian general Naaman. There's no better picture. A Syrian general who goes to God for help. You see, it's an absolute shocking thing in 850-ish B.C. when King Jehoram was the king of Israel. It was the divided kingdom. That's why it's called kings, plural, because you have Judah and Israel. Jehor the Syria, with a superior military force, their number one top Syrian official goes to Israel, to the God of Israel, for help. It's, it's shocking that he would do that. It's as shocking as if Jeff Bezos, the, the president and CEO of Amazon, heard that this little church in Avon Lake, Ohio, had a great preaching and he got sick and he wanted to come in and he slipped in the back and sat down in the back and listened to my sermons. What would you say? No way. Right? You know, you know, God cares. You know, and so the, po and the point is, it's shocking. It's shocking. And research tells us that we live in a culture that isn't searching. Most people, few people do, but most don't. And they're not going to certainly come to church because they're not searching for God. They're comfortable. They're good. They're self-sufficient. They're accomplished. In other words, across the West Shore, there's lots of Naamans. All right? And under the fact is, under the surface, we see that there's a lot of clandestine spiritual searching going on. So we're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 5. If you didn't bring your Bible, it's in the back of your bulletin where you can find it on your device. And what Naaman... Or Naaman, you know, we don't know who, how the name was pronounced. Uh, Naaman teaches us 
why people search for God, how people find God, and how it's all possible. All right? So number one, that's where we're headed. One, why people search for God. Well, there are two reasons that Naaman shows us why people search for God. And Naaman exhibits them both. First, you have to come to the place where you realize that your own self-sufficiency is an absolute lie. Verse 1, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. He was number one in the Syrian West Point class, military commander with a great reputation. He was brave. He was quick on his feet in combat, and he had great wealth. But he's sick. So the first thing that we learn right on verse 1, just like last week, you can do all the kind of things to design your life. You can create for yourself a wonderful designer life with your dream house, trophy wife, wonderful financial portfolio, vacation home in Florida, and a 2020 Dodge Challenger, and something will always ruin it. Someone you love dies. You get sick. Relations break up. Financial ruin. And no amount of wealth or success or power can make you impervious to those kinds of things. Not only can they happen to you, they will happen to you. And when they will and when they do, the most seemingly self-sufficient person will come to the place where they recognize they're out of their league. And when that happens, it's not just that you'll know, I know I'm not in control of my life. You'll also discover that you never were in control of your life. I'm fragile. And that illusion of self-sufficiency will be utterly shattered. And those are just things from, from outside of us. This is not to mention those things that are inside of us, our own anxieties, um, our own resentments and bitterness which can eat at us, our own um, addictions that we are in denial about. These things reveal that our self-sufficiency is an absolute lie. Now, we all know people who've gone through really tough times and they never come to faith in God. I know that. You know that. But if you're going to search for God, that's the first step. And recognize that you can put together your designer life, but something will always ruin it. And you'll see that your designer life is an illusion. Secondly, you have to see that the world cannot help you. Because <laughs> Naaman had connections. He was served at the right hand of the king. He had money because he was highly successful. And he had power. And yet, he still had this sickness. So he hears from the little slave girl that, of his wife that they had captured... Notice it also says that the Lord did this for him. The Lord was sovereign over this. Um, what does he do? He hears this, that there's a king, there's a prophet in Israel. And so verse 5, So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king. So what did Naaman go to the king of Israel with? <laughs> he went with his... Money, his connections, and his power. 
all the things which worked in Syria, right? He came with all the things so he could earn his healing. What he has to learn, and what this story is telling us as well, and what we have to learn, is that you can't even make progress in your relationship with the Lord until you see that that doesn't work. The world does not have what we need. So he arrives at the king of Israel's door, and notice what the king of Israel does, verse 7. He says, the second half of verse 7, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. See, the king of Israel, I mean, this is a political and military, you know, enemy. He's thinking that this is the launch of the Pearl, next Pearl Harbor, all right? He thinks that this is going to cause a war. And what the king realizes is that Naaman and his entourage don't have an, a, any clue about how the real God operates. Now, that's honestly, you know, he's not a follower of God. And, and Naaman thought that this God functioned like every other God's, which is all the priests in the temple, all the prophets, everything around the religion was supported and financed by the king, employed by the king. And it brought unity in the nation because it reflected the nation. It was a deification of the nation. And so if you're going to appeal to their God, you went to the number one guy who was the king. So Naaman was just expecting that Israel God worked like every other God in the world. And what he had to do and what he had to learn was that no. And so when the king of Israel tears his robes, what he's saying is you've come to the one place in the world where the priest doesn't work for the king. The prophet doesn't work for the king. Where the God is real. The God is transcendent. The God has his own reality and being. He is not a projection of our hearts and culture. He's a judge on our hearts and our culture. And Naaman must learn that, that salvation and blessing cannot be bought or earned. And what he really needs, the world can't give him all the money in the world, all the power in the world, all the success connections aren't going to work here. Now, we live in a culture that doesn't believe that. We live in a culture that believes as the king of Syria believes. All the freshmen went to the state universities around our country this week, last week. And they go to world religion class. What they're going to hear is religion is essentially a projection of our culture. If you're Arab, you're Muslim. If you're Indian, you're Hindu. If you're American, you're a Christian or a Jew or nothing. That's what people say. That's what they're taught. The point is, it's an extension of our culture. That's basically what it is. And the idea that a transcendent God who, with his own reality that is objectively true, is not even a thought in that worldview. So what's going to solve our nation's problems? What's going to solve our racism? The violence. The social breakdown. The family breakdown. Well, we go to the top. We go to Congress. We go to the top brains and appoint a commission. 
That'll do it. Oh, how I wish our kings, our presidents, our Congress would say, am I God? (laughs) The king is saying, hey, I can do a lot that I can give you, but I can't give you what you really need. I can't give you what only God can give you. That's what he's saying here. Don't you wish that our leaders would say that? Uh, The world can't help us, friends. And Becky Pipper, in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, great read. I encourage you to read that book. Um, In in there, she has an illustration of this. She audited a class at Harvard. That shows you how smart she is. She she audited a counseling class at Harvard. um, And the professor was speaking about a patient of of a therapist who had been raised by wolves, basically. His, his mom was an awful mother, and the guy had come to the place where he realized that all the bitterness and anger that he had in it for, for his mother had had a horrible impact on his life. And it was distorting his life. So Becky raised her hand at the end of the lecture, because it, it was a spot-on diagnosis. She says, thank you, Professor. Now, how did the therapist help him to forgive his mother i mean thank you for showing us this but how do i forgive her so her anger doesn't keep twisting my life well the professor looked at becky and said i think the therapist would say lots of luck and all the students in the class got a little upset i mean after all aren't you supposed to help people right isn't forgiveness something that can relieve suffering and You know, shouldn't the therapist guide the man through his questioning to get the person to get them forgiveness? And the professor rightly pushed back and said, look, we're scientists here. Forgiveness is another matter. Forgiveness is a matter of right and wrong. It's in the sphere of faith and values. You forgive someone if you first of all believe in forgiveness. Or you can think that a person what they did wasn't too bad, so maybe I can forgive you, or maybe I won't forgive you because the thing was really bad. Who's to say what's right? Who's to say what's wrong? When you look at psychology for something for forgiveness, that's impossible. You're getting into the area of faith. If you're looking for a changed heart, you're in the wrong department. You see, aren't you glad the king said, am I God? See, you have to go to God for a forgiving heart. You have to go to God to have faith. And you can't just look at our cultural experts. They can't give you what you most need, which is knowledge of the living God and spiritual progress. So that's the first thing you have to do in a search for God. One, recognize the lie of self-sufficiency. And two, recognize the world can't help you in this search. Secondly, how do people find God? Well, Naaman also shows us two ways he found God here. Uh, And they're absolutely crucial. And if you don't get these right, you're going to spin your wheels. Number one, you have to make the shift from wanting help from your suffering to wanting forgiveness for your sins. All right? That's the first thing. Verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent them this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there's a prophet in Israel. Notice Elisha doesn't say, 
have him come to me, and he will know that there's a wizard in Israel. All right? A prophet was a bearer of truth. A prophet was a person who reveals truth from God, the words of God, and the man of God. He doesn't say what this man really needs is a wizard, a magician, a miracle worker. What this man needs is the word of God, a prophet. And this is what actually leaks out into next week. If you look in your Bibles down to verse 15, the second half of verse 15, Naaman said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. He doesn't say, wow, you're a real powerful wizard. It's the most revolutionary thing that he says in that verse of any non-Israelite would ever say. Now I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. For a Syrian to say that, not your God is more powerful than my God, not your God cured my leprosy, No, there's no other God in all the world. The only true exclusive God is the God of Israel. Wait, 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 wait. I thought he came to be healed. See, the nature of the cure was such to drive out of him his false beliefs. Because what Elisha is after is not primarily his healing from his suffering. He knows that the suffering is getting Naaman's attention, as suffering does for all of us, right? But it wakes him up out of the, self, the dream of self-sufficiency and drives him towards God, and that's good. But what Elisha is really after is a change of faith. We see this all throughout the Bible, right? Mark chapter 2, the paralyzed man being brought down through the roof of a house, you know, placed right in front of Jesus. Jesus <laughs> looks down at him and says, your sins are forgiven. His friends are like, he can't walk. You know, he needs to walk. And he looked at them and he said, so you know that I have power to forgive sins, which means he's God. Rise up and walk. And the man did. But what was his greatest need? The forgiveness of his sin. All right? The real problem is we need to know that. We need to know that we can't have a relationship with God with sin blocking that relationship with God and our own self-righteousness, our self-sufficiency, and our pride. Because Naaman was living for himself. And so until he had this change of mind as well as change of heart, he wasn't going to get it. And this healing was a way to bust his paradigm of the leprosy of his soul, quite frankly. So he could cure that self-righteousness, get forgiveness of God, so he could have a relationship with God. That's first, all right? Secondly, the second shift is you've got to change your thinking from thinking you can earn your blessing from God by your performance instead of resting in his grace. As soon as Elisha starts to tell him what the cure is going to be, the first thing that happens is, you notice, Elisha doesn't even come out to talk to Naaman. Can you imagine the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, yesterday afternoon, 
coming to your house with all the entourage, all these suburbans, these black suburbans, pull up to your house, pull into your driveway, get out of your car, knock on your door. Your friend answers the door, and and your friend says, wait here, boom. And you're back there watching the tribe, you know, eating your peanuts and drinking your Gatorade. And, uh, you know, you, (laughs) you say, just tell them to go wash in the creek seven times. Right? That's what he did. Didn't even come out to meet him. He goes, he opens the door and says, go wash in the creek seven times because that's what the Jordan River is. It's not bigger than any, this little creek in Veterans Park, the Avon Lake, going by the, bay, by the Avon Lake Boat Club. It's a creek that goes out in Lake Erie. That's all it is. All right? <laughs> and, and he thinks what I'm thinking. You know, I'm from Virginia, man. Shenandoah is better than that creek, right? And that's what he says. Abana, Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, they're much better than this. And, and notice, Elisha doesn't even, he expected him to come out and be Gandalf. Thou shalt not pass, you know, with a, with a staff and a wand and wave his hand. He says in verse 11, I thought that he would surely come out to me. He's insulted, number one. And stand and call the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand. Elisha doesn't do that either. Because Elisha doesn't want to think that it's his power who's curing and saving him, nor does he want to think it's name is performance that's curing him. Okay? What's happening here, he goes down and goes away in a rage. And Naaman is furious. So we're told in verse 13 that Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? Because that's what he was expecting. He was probably expecting Naaman to have out in his backyard some kind of American ninja warrior maze that he'd have to conquer. Because that's what happens in all the fairy tales, right? You're going to get the damsel in distress and rescue Sleeping Beauty, you got to slay the dragon. Right? Yeah, I can do this, because that's exactly what Naaman would have thought. All right, now you got to go back and do American Ninja Warrior. Naaman would have said, oh, I got this. I can do that. There's a God that I can believe in. There's a, there's a healing that I've earned. Every great fairy tale, you have to endure a great quest to get your bliss, to get your salvation, and to get your happily ever after. It's deeply embedded in us that blessing and happily ever after goes to those people who go through ordeals, do great things, and achieve and work, and are morally pure, diligent, and hardworking. So here's what Naaman is saying. Anybody can go wash in that creek. Anybody can do that. Does this guy have no standards? I mean, you know, any prostitute can go down there? Any uh, lazy person can go down there? I graduated in the top of my class of West Point in Syria. I know when I've been insulted. Naaman is learning here, was taught throughout the whole Bible, what Paul articulates in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's as if the servants say, yeah, Naaman, uh, we're all unworthy because salvation is received by grace 
it's not achieved, it's received as a gift. Now, over the years, after explaining the gospel to people, I've had so many people, after you walk through the whole gospel and what true belief is, trusting with all your life on that work, on the cross of Christ, placing it all there, and it's from that gratitude which we walk with Christ, they say, is that it? It's too easy, you know? Just too easy. That's what's happening here. Except it's not too easy. You know that. It's too hard. If you look carefully what the servant says, he says, my father at the prophet had told you to do some great thing. Wouldn't you have done it? How much more then should you do this? All the servants are saying the greatest deed to receive salvation is to admit that there isn't any deed to do. The hardest thing to do is to admit that no matter how hard you try, you can't earn it. It's not too easy to accept the free, free grace of God. It's too hard, and that's why most people don't. John Gerstner, years ago, who was the professor of Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, said, if you want to become a Christian, all you need is need, all you need is nothing, and very few people have that. Do you see that now? Naaman does. He's insulted, and he says, it's too easy. And the servant says, no, it's actually too hard for you. You know, this is a great deed to admit that there's no great deed you can do, so go and wash, master. So he does, and he's saved. And next week, we're going to see that he's not only healed, he's a new person. So stay tuned. It's going to get even better next week. So how is, how is all this possible? All right? Third point, closing point. Well, first, we just have to just wash like Naaman. We're able to see, why is he able to receive God's grace? Because he went and washed seven times in physical water at the command of the prophet. We're asked to wash in the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ. It's fascinating. In Mark chapter 10, um, in an argument with the disciples, because James and John were saying, we're the greatest, right? We want to sit at your kingdom, at your right hand. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? See, when Jesus talks about baptism, yes, it's his baptism by John in the Jordan. He comes out, but it's that dying to himself as a symbol of his dying upon the cross. And Jesus didn't just go through physical water. He went through an ocean of divine justice and wrath for all of us. He went under the ocean of divine wrath. He went to the cross for us to slay the dragon of evil, and he did that great deed for you and me. Jesus also did that for Naaman 850 years before Naaman could even articulate it. That's how God's people were saved. They were saved by the grace of God through trust in God. But we live in a new and a better covenant. Jesus had done that for him, has done that for him, so he can just wash 
And Jesus has done it for you. That's why you can just wash. I was picking up Ben the other morning uh, from Discount Tire because him and Amy had gotten some tires and one of them was a bum tire. So I had to pick him up early in the morning and I had my playlist going and on my playlist came Alan Jackson's Are You Washed in the Blood of the Lamb? Now I know this isn't the perfect best genre and a lot of you guys like the pipe organ and all that stuff, but I got news for you. Those 1930s and 1920s gospel songs just resonate with me. And I like the pipe organ, don't get me wrong. But there's something about the simple profundity of American gospel music. And Alan Jackson and the Strayhorns get it better than most. Have you been to Jesus for his cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Then the stray horns come in with their four-part harmony. Are you washed? Are you washed in the blood, in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? It all comes down to that. Let's apply this. Number one, have you made the shift of your thinking? Really? Number one, that our self-sufficiency and our dream lifestyle and dream life is simply an illusion. Have you made that shift and realized that it, that's all it is? I can't trust in that. And number two, that the world can't help me in the midst of my suffering. Three, that the, that the real problem in the midst of my suffering is not my suffering. The real problem is that I'm a rebel to the core in my sin and I need forgiveness of that sin. And four, that I can rest in the grace of God. And like James and John, who were washed in the blood of the Lamb, and who paid with, it, with their lives, died a death, and we'll see them in glory one day. See, when you believe this gospel, when you believe like that, you're like Naaman. All the experts told him, take this money, take 10 changes of clothes, give the dude some real fancy Levi's, boom, he'll heal you. Um, you know, all these stuff... And yet Naaman listened to the little slave girl. <laughs> you know, she's going to really come into play next week, by the way. Okay? He believed her. And the gospel today in our culture, my friends, is laughed at and despised by all the experts. But if you believe what the God's word is telling us today, like Naaman, you're like him, and you'll be like that little slave girl. And we'll be going against the current, and we'll be going against what all the smart and all the popular people are saying today. But it's true. So let's believe that little slave girl, and let's believe in the grace of God upon Naaman. And let's be washed in the blood, the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. Are our garments spotless? Are they white as snow? 
are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that it's through the blood of the Lamb we come to you. And we thank you for this incredible transformation that we're going to see not only today but next week as Naaman comes out of the water a new person. And Lord, he, he embraced it. He recognized the illusion of his self-sufficiency. He recognized that the world couldn't help him. He recognized that the problem is his sin and that it's to be received, not achieved by his great acts or Elisha's great acts. It's achieved all on account of your grace. And Lord, as we come to your table this day, we pray you would make these truths real, ever so real in our hearts. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.